When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, if it was me as a 20-something Australian over the North Pacific on behalf of the Americans monitoring a dozen or so thermonuclear weapons pointed at American cities, it's quite an awesome uh, responsibility and uh, circumstances to be in. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place for first-hand Cold War history accounts. And make sure you hit that follow button in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Lee joined the Royal Australian Air Force in 1978 to train as a pilot, but was scrubbed after a few months and transitioned to training as an air electronics officer. He flew on the P-3C Orion and was employed on operations in the Indo-Pacific region on maritime patrol surveillance these included the usual surface surveillance of the region and operations alongside the US against Soviet submarines transiting the area. He also had the opportunity to track Soviet nuclear missile submarines in the Northeast Pacific with the US Navy. He details many incidents during his career, including an archaeological mission, accidentally causing a diplomatic incident, as well as monitoring the splashdown and recovery of re-entry vehicles used to test the heat tiles for the Soviet Buran space shuttle. The Orion served with the Royal Australian Air Force for an incredible 55 years, from 1968 to 2023. I'm delighted to welcome Lee Collins to our Cold War conversation. As a kid, I was always interested in aviation and the military. I always had, back in the day, I had my, you know, or played with airfix kits and I had a GI Joe and action man and all that sort of thing. So, um, no, but, but my, my brother was, um, about six years ahead of me, but he, he was in the air cadets and my other brother, he joined the air cadets as well, the air training corps as it was at the time. And, um, and I, I then joined after them, but while I was still in the cadets, you know, my oldest brother joined the air force initially as a navigator flying on Neptune's in Townsville, Neptune uh, maritime patrol aircraft. And then, uh, as, as being a cadet, I actually uh, uh, was able to use uh, that status to actually get a, f- a couple of flights in um, in a Neptune while I was on holidays with him up in Townsville in northern Queensland. So that got my first interest in A, the Air Force as a possible career, but also also the whole concept of maritime patrol and going up in something like the old Neptune, which isn't far removed from a World War II two-engine bomber. Um, it, it really got the juices flowing. What were your aspirations to do to work on maritime patrol as a as a pilot or some other member of the crew? The maritime patrol one was kind of secondary. I was always very interested, keen to get uh, be a pilot, as as I guess most people are. 
So actually, I applied about three times. In fact, I applied a, a year before I was old enough to join the Air Force because the Navy took people was while training a year younger. So I applied there and they said, yeah, yeah, come back next year and we'll see what we think of you. But um, no, I eventually got on pilot scores after about three selection boards. And then, uh, um, but uh, as, as luck would have it, I lasted about um, uh, about three months on course and on, uh, I bombed out of the pilot training on about the, th- the first of the major uh, tests that we did on the old CT4 air trainer, a little single engine pop trainer. And, uh, and the system uh, thought, mm, maybe we could send you across and do, uh, with, there's no slots available for navigator training, but we can put you on, um, on a, an air electronics officers course, uh, that's just started. And I thought, hang on, they fly maritime, they fly Neptunes and B3s. Okay. I'm in. So uh, very quickly, I was over to the RAF base at East Sail to the School of Air Navigation. And then uh, I spent the next year learning how to sit in the back of a, an aircraft and, uh, and play with radars and radios and all that sort of thing. And then graduated in mid 79 as a, as a brand new shiny, uh, pilot officer, air electronics officer. I'm just interested to know, and you can obviously say no to this, but what, what did the Air Force think were your failings as a, as a pilot? It was simply the, the flight, the flying, the, you know, the hand and eye coordination bit. I was, uh, I was okay at, uh, you know, the, the academic subjects were fine and, uh, I was no star, but I was, I was passing things. And then, uh, Essentially, uh, when you rejoin the circuit on the wrong one runway uh, on your on your uh, on your scrub ride, uh, they probably uh, think uh, time is up for you. Now, I, I had some I had some issues with uh, just the air work and coordination of um, the, you know three D spatial orientation of uh, where I was putting the aircraft. And uh, but uh, ironically, though, for the for the higher level things like going out and doing aerobatics, I was I, I quite enjoyed that and I was reasonably good at it. But that didn't have a lot of Sort of accuracy in in uh, like instrument flying or anything, uh, but it was it was the uh, it was that more technical detailed stuff like circuits and interest in, uh, instrument flying that that uh, um, that saw me off. Being the AEO, did you find that a lot of fun? Was that something that you found fulfilling? Oh, so, oh certainly. The um the the just just a very quick background. The uh, the the P three and the, indeed the Neptune before it Neptune. Uh, um, and the Nimrod, in fact, the back end uh, consisted of both navigators and uh, air electronics officers. The air electronics officers were essentially operated the uh, the acoustics and electronic uh, sensors, the uh, sonar systems, electronic warfare radar, that sort that sort of thing. Uh, uh, whereas the uh, the navigator was more about uh, you know getting the aircraft where it needed to be at any given time. And uh, the tactical coordinator, who was the lead navigator, essentially, he he essentially ran the mission. He was the mission mission fighter. So, as the central operator down the back, I was uh, I was involved in using the sensors to to try and find contacts, whether they be subsurface or surface contacts. And as as the uh, experience progressed, I then got to the the role of what then was later called a central employment manager, which is basically the lead central operator on the crew. Where you are one of the three key uh, key crew members, provide advice to the TACO and the captain on how to uh, how to use the sensors down the back of the aircraft to full, uh, to the best extent. And so, from that perspective, once I got to the stage of being a lead sensor of our operator slash central employment manager, uh, I was uh, you know, I was in a different area, and the and the job satisfaction was was outstanding. For the Orion. How long was a normal mission, and what sort of distance would it have been flying? Well, it's uh, that, that varies, obviously. You know, you, you know, I could say how long's a piece of string, but 
for a search and rescue or, or something at long range where it's an imperative that a task gets done, you, you can be out there for the absolute, uh, what's known as a prudent limited endurance, so essentially as, as long as the, the aircraft and its fuel would, would take you. So, um, so the longest uh, I've ever done, in fact, was a, a, an overnight transit from Guam in, in uh, north, way, way, way north of Australia to uh, the Kiwi Air Force Base at Fenorpai in, uh, in Auckland. And that was about 14 and a half hours, but that was mainly transit. However, I have been on a number of uh, patrols uh, in the Indian Ocean, Northern Pacific, where uh, we've been sort of dragging it out to, you know, 13 hours, 13 hours plus, that sort of thing. So when you, it doesn't sound like much when you say it to a, to a layman, but 13 hours in a, in a, in a hundred foot long metal tube is, uh, and when you're bouncing around the sky and depending what it is you're doing, yeah, it can be a long time. And uh, I imagine the facilities are not much more than a chemical loo. And uh, did you have a galley on there as well? Well, the, the old Neptune, which I only, as I said, I only flew a couple of experience flights with the uh, Air Training Corps, but uh, the, the P-3 was a, was a step up from that. It, it, a uh, pressurised aircraft, but it, it had a galley uh, with a little dinette table with four seats, a couple of bunks, a, uh, a, a nicely uh, uh, equipped uh a galley area with a, a yeah, food, a food uh, preparation area, a, a, a heating box for heating up frozen, frozen meals, a, a 40 cup coffee percolator, a, uh, a, a, a small fridge about the size of your average little mini bar, bar fridge. So we, we did all right as far as you know, things like, you know, a couple of coffee meals, whatever. So it was actually quite a, quite a comfortable, comfortable aircraft to fly in. Wow. That sounds like luxury compared to something like a Shackleton. Oh, well, my, my brother spent a lot of time before he went to P3s. He spent a lot of time on the Neptunes, and, and yeah, you're right. So yeah, basically comparing a, a Lancaster to a seven three seven, it's about the same sort of deal. How much Soviet naval activity was there around Australia in in the 1980s? Um, I, pr- I presume that's your, that was your primary role to to monitor that. That was the, probably the higher end role. We did quite a bit of that. We had a, a lot of other bread and butter stuff we did more locally. And so, for uh, probably slightly more than half of what we did was more local things like uh, um, exclusive economic zone surveillance, customs, um, search and rescue, that sort of thing. But we did a lot of um, general surveillance. Uh, yeah, pretty well um, centered on the Indian Ocean. Western and Northern Indian Ocean, South China Sea, uh, Malacca Straits, Bay of Bengal, uh, a little bit out to the to the east over the over the South Pacific, but that was more to do with uh, monitoring, fishing, and resources for the South Pacific nations. But uh, there was always a presence uh, in the Southeast Asia area, um, primarily due to the fact that. Uh, Russian or Soviet, Soviet forces that uh, needed to get to where things were occurring in the Indo-Pacific, they had to leave their ports in Vladivostok to get to places like the Gulf of Arabia or uh, or the, the or the west, you know, northwestern Indian Ocean. Uh, in reaction to uh, American American forces there, they had to go through uh, the, uh, the the Southeast Asia area. So their, their standard transit route took them down. Past uh, you know down past Japan down uh, down past Taiwan into the South China Sea uh, and at which point a little bit of international law then takes over so there were certain agreed shipping routes that uh, um, that that would um, would be used and 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 
and generally these uh, these forces, either submarines, surface ships, or submarines with surface escorts, would come through uh, South China Sea into uh, just south of Singapore, and then up into the Malacca Straits, where the water is pretty shallow, um, and you'd have to be a brave submariner when they were there submerged, um, and uh, and then they would they would transit up up through that area, and then across the top of Sumatra, west across south of Sri Lanka, across to uh, to their operating area in the uh, in the northwest in Indian Ocean. So uh, what we would do, um, often just as Australian maritime patrol aircraft doing surveillance of the area um, in in our area of operation, which was um, north northern Indian Ocean, South China Sea, Malacca Straits area, we'd often do uh, cooperative work uh, with the Americans, where they would be tracking Soviet Soviet units. From their P three elements that were coming out of uh, out of uh, flying out of places like QB Point in the Philippines or uh, Guam, and when they got down to around the Singapore area, we would then take over the, the the tracking of them on the surface at that stage, and then once they got to the top of the Malacca Straits on heading west, they, that's when they they were in a safe area where they could then submerge if they were some obviously if they were submarine they would submerge and go covert. That's where we would then track them for a while, and then depending on the timing, we would then hand over to the U.S. operating out of uh, places like Diego Garcia or indeed Cuba, Cuba Point, the Philippines. So we're very much a partnership there. So the so the uh, a, long, a long answer to a short question, but yeah, the Soviets in our area were very much to the north of Australia, uh, on their way from Vladivostok to where they needed to do stuff over in the northwest uh, Indian Ocean, and we had a role in. In tracking them in that in that area, uh, and that that was probably about twenty five percent of the, the the our tasking in, in any given year, depending on you know the, the op tempo at the time. Because uh, you're po- you're posted to ten squadron. That's right. And I was uh, fascinated to see one of your first missions is sort of archaeological. Yes, uh, just out of the blue, I, you, know, you you may or may not have heard it, but there was a. Um, uh, a program, and I think it's still going, called Operation Drake, and it's a sort of a youth development program thing. And part of it was uh, uh, this group of uh, young people that were doing various segments of, a, of, of work on a on a uh, on a square rigger sloop, whatever it was. I'm not ever into sailing ship recognition, uh, but called the Eye of the Wind. This thing was sailing around um, uh, the world, doing all sorts of projects with all these young kids on board as, as part of Operation Drake. One of which happened to be also um, searching for the supposed location of uh, some cannon that Sir Francis Drake dumped overboard from the, the Golden Hind uh, when he uh, uh, when he went aground on Vesuvius Ridge in Sulawesi, or what's now Indonesia. Now, uh, so we went up there, and we uh, there was a bit of a PR aspect to it, obviously, but we went up there and you know did a few photo passes and. Uh, and as as luck would have it, I, I was actually on the on the station monitoring the uh, the magnetic anomaly detector because that's really the only tool we could use, as long as the cannon were in fact iron rather than bronze. And we got some indications there was something there on the side of the reef, but it could have been um, some uh, some ballast that had been ducked overboard from a from a more recent so shipwreck or whatever. We we never knew, but we we certainly got some. We got some um, uh, some indications that there was some metal on the side of the side of the reef, but the, the, the local media they beat it up a little bit and sort of said, "Oh, we found Jake's cannon," but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm yet to be convinced. And uh, yeah, and that was yeah, forty years ago, and no one's said, you know, no one going up there to dig up Drake's cannon. But but that's the sort of thing we did. That but that was more of a 
uh, an aid to the civil community, public affairs, uh, that sort of thing. But it was quite an enjoyable flight. We were talking to the ship and we were dropping dropping in little heli boxes to them. We were dropping uh, magazines in local newspapers, Australian local local papers and, and things to them just to, uh, just to sort of keep up the communication. How were you dropping these these things to them? In, were they dropped into the sea and then they'd pick them up? Yeah, it's it's very very low tech. We've uh, we've got one of the these things that are known as uh, helo boxes or heli boxes, and they're essentially just a cardboard box with orange and white stripes all over it, with the top flats uh, flaps of it, um, like any box that's got four flaps that fold over the top to close it. These things are held out um, open with pieces of string that are knotted to the bottom of the, the bottom of the box. So when when the box is thrown out into the slipstream, just the weight and balance of it, these the, the flaps on the box turn into almost essentially uh, rotor veins and stabilize it, and it just eventually free falls down to the water. So you can't really, you can put small things in it if you needed to for search and rescue. You do things like put a radio in it or that sort of thing. But it's very visible, easy to be picked up. In these cases, these things they were they were picked up. They just went over there in the little their uh, their their their, their ribbon and, and picked it up and sort of waved at us and said hello and goodbye and off we went. I'm learning a lot already. So, so, so there you go. It's low tech. It, 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 it was a cardboard. Essentially, we chuck, chuck, chuck we can chuck cardboard boxes over door. You open the main cabin door, and the guy stands there on the radio, on the uh, intercom, and and on a on a count from the uh, from the front end of the aircraft. You know, the, the the size nine boot just kicks it out the door. But I'm presuming waterproofed cardboard or waterproofed well, in some way. Well, to, to to an extent, to it. I've been on the receiving end of them once during a a. a uh, search and rescue survival exercise you did just south of Adelaide, and we were sitting in a, in a dinghy. And we had a couple of them, couple of them uh, launched towards us, and uh, yeah, they, you know, the the contents survived, and uh, you know, we were lucky not to be hit by them because they, they came very close to the dinghy. Shortly after that, you you get a visit from RAF six one seven Squadron Vulcan. Yeah, this is not related to you know the the. The, the maritime as such, it was simply the, the, the fact that the Australian uh, branch of the, the Dambusters Association or whatever they call themselves decided to have the, their annual reunion in Australia in that year. And it was in Adelaide and it coincided with Anzac Day on April, April the 25th. So in, in, in conjunction with that, 617 Squadron threw a Vulcan across uh, and a bunch of the old uh, original uh, 617 members, including quite a few guys on the, on the dams raid, they turned up in, uh, in South Australia and marched in the Anzac Day Parade. And, and uh, as a brand new young pilot officer on the squadron, uh, yeah, we were uh, basically ordered to go to this dining in night in the officer's mess uh, for the 617 reunion. And we were more than happy to go. And as I, 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 luck would have it, I, I got to sit next to uh, Toby Foxley, who was an Australian, uh, I think it was, I think it was um, uh, uh, bomb aimer. On uh, on one of the aircraft, uh, so he was on the dams right and chatting to him. Uh, it was was fascinating. But they they had a uh, a bunch of um, first aid covers that had been produced by the uh, by the Leonard Cheshire Foundation as a as a fundraiser with it, with Bomber Harris's signature on them and uh, and, and with a, the the nineteen seventy seven Queen's Jubilee stamp on them. And they were selling these things about ten dollars each at the at the dinner and other other functions and. Everyone that had them at the dining in night were just passing them around the table, getting you know, loads and loads of signatures. So I still one of my most treasured possessions from my whole time in the Air Force has been is this first day cover with Bomber Harris's signature at the top, with the signature of about twenty members of six one seven, including about 10, 10 members who were on the dams raid. Wow, wow! 
that was incidental to the fact that we're maritime. That was just so happens to be at Rath Base Edinburgh in South Australia, and that's where they land. Right. It must have been incredible speaking to somebody who'd actually participated in that raid. I, I appreciated it at the time because I'd, I'd seen the movie God knows how many times. And, and strangely enough, when I was at school, we had a, a school choir that uh, we performed at speech night uh, in front of these huge uh, organ pipes at uh, at the Brisbane City Hall. And it was almost like the, the last night of the proms in, uh, yeah, in, in Down Under. But we uh, we did the vocal version of uh, of the Dambusters theme, and and so I'd I'd known about the Dambusters since I was in about uh, you know since I was about twelve years old. <laughs> so to actually meet these guys, but I look back at it now and think so many more opportunities and things I know about about, about the Dams raid and later six one seven raids now that I know. Um, that oh, if I could ask these guys those same questions now, it would be it would be, be absolute heaven. Absolutely. I mean, I'm always amazed at the feat of navigation, of finding the target night at level um, across blacked-out Germany. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it was a difficult task, and and, yeah, and as you'd expect, they didn't all make it. Yeah, yeah, the majority got to the dams, and uh, but we had uh, you know, a couple of aircraft uh, crash on the way. I got shot down. Les Munro had his issues and had to turn around and go back. And um, yeah, so it was uh, it was very costly. But uh, yeah, but as you said, yeah, the navigation at low level is hard hard at the best of times. But to do it uh, in a, in a single pilot four engine no no autopilot bomber like a Lancaster in, in those sort of circumstances, I, I just uh, I, my hat goes off to those guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I mean, with, with the... Orion, I mean, how were you navigating over the ocean? Were you, was GPS in use at that time? Or not, or not? not then. Obviously, it is now. The aircraft has been upgraded over the years. As, as, as there's improvements in um, navigation systems and sensor systems, the aircraft has been progressively up- upgraded. So the original P3B model that we got in, I think, in 1968, that was uh, we, we on 10 Squadron on the nice computerised P3C, we used to call it the old steam, steam driven Bravo model, but, um, they, they were pretty basic. They were, they were down to the, not much different to, uh, to what the, uh, what crews in World War II would have been doing as far as, uh, as, as navigation and, uh, manual track plots and auto track plots and dead reckoning and that sort of thing. But there were some, some of the early nav aids like Lorraine and Omega, which were, um, yeah, they were, they were uh, cutting edge at the time, but they still weren't um, uh, weren't that uh, easy easy to uh, to use. Um, and it wasn't until 
really later on when GPS came in where, where suddenly you had this means that you pretty well knew where the aircraft was in any, any given time. But stepping back on, we had inertial systems, uh, our aircraft, so we had uh, twin, twin inertials on the aircraft and and uh, they are they are very accurate and they, they would drift like any uh, gyroscopic system, they, they would have a bit of a drift and, and that's where either the pilots looking out the window or myself on the radar, for instance, if we got something we could do an actual fix on, like a radar uh, contact on a on a on a known position on a on the coast, a little a cape or an island or a rock or something, or the pilots would fly over a known position. The navigator could then update the the um, the, the inertials, and that would then slew the aircraft position back to that point, and then and then basically to a known a known position, and then away it'd go again. So INS, it's not GPS, but it was um, uh, but it was cutting edge at its time, and its advantage even today though is unlike. GPS, which could be, uh, which can be jammed, it can be turned off, whatever. Uh, inertial is internal to the aircraft, absolutely internal to the aircraft. It's a bunch of whizzing wheels on a, on a gyroscope system. It's not relying on signals coming from outside that can be jammed. So it's, uh, it's, it's actually from that perspective, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more secure. I'm familiar with it on the, uh, the Vulcan where I'm, I'm a volunteer at the Avro Museum and I do tours of the Vulcan and I'm always, fascinated by the precision of the instrumentation and how the you know the inertial navigation system how that it's all wheels and cogs in there's no chips or anything no the the early they, they had computers but the early analog computers literally revolved uh you know little metal wheels and pulleys and rods and push bars and things and they created just using using Analog inputs like that would then just output to a, a bunch of numbers appearing on a little little counter on the screen that the navigator would uh, would would use. And you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not a navigator, uh, but I know the principles behind a lot of this stuff. And once again, my hat goes off to these guys. They were using this sort of thing. And when you when you're over the middle of the, the Indian Ocean, heading to somewhere like Cocos Island or Diego Garcia to to maintain your position, then you know. Be, be told that you know there it is. We've got a visual on the you know, on the nose in the aircraft in uh, you know, twenty miles. That's that's a that's a that's a, a great achievement. Absolutely, absolutely. Did did the uh, crews use astral navigation as well using sextant? Yeah, certainly did. The uh, the navigator course. I, I just step back one. When I did the air electronics officers course, the AEO course, we did it in conjunction with the, the NAVS. So all the core aviation officer training top subjects we trained together and then the navigators went off and did their navigating specialist training and the AEOs went off and did their little bit and we graduated together. Um, NAV got the little N-wing and, and we got the little AE-wing. Uh, yeah, Astro was taught as part of the, nav- the navigator course and, uh, and and from my experience as an AEO student uh, with a, a bunch of mates on the NAV course that we were living, living with and working with, a lot of their time on on course was doing practice uh, astro shots using the uh, uh, using the aerial sextants. They had at the, at the nav training school they had uh, little setups at the, in the in, in the courtyard of the of the nav school where they could mount the uh, the aircraft sextants and um, in such a way and then 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 just go through the process of of using the kit, but also uh, the calculations involved in using the uh, the site reduction ta- uh, tables and it's like you know, it's like doing high end mathematics using log log tables it's that sort of thing so that the more they did it and practiced over and over again the, the better they could do so yeah so the p3 and the neptune they did in fact have uh, have a have a sextant uh, mounted in them 
just after the after the the cockpit area between the navigator and the uh, the, the technical coordinator was in the roof. So uh, um, they'd have a little step that you'd put down and uh, a little red flag and say, "Don't go no further, otherwise you'll bark your bark your uh, your, your ankles as you walk past." Um, and they'd stand up there and they'd look at this little gyroscopic uh, sextant through the, through the ceiling and, and, um, and work out their positions. And, but, but more often than not, it was done as a, as a practice thing just to keep the state of the art going, their, their own, own skills. Um, I wasn't particularly in any aircraft, particularly where, where it was a, yeah, astro navigation was used as a, as a fallback option because everything else had failed. But I assured that did have time. It was one of my favourite features of the Vulcan that the the fact that they were using a navigation technique from the 18th century of sailing ships exactly in a 20th century aircraft I just found mind blowing yeah but it was more I think you know it was in there from like the 1950s when they were designed yes. when you know perhaps some of the inertial systems weren't as accurate and it, it was a means for them to uh you know not get lost over the ocean yeah the um as the p3 was, has been developed over the years and i don't know exactly when it was but it, it might have been part of the major upgrade that occurred in about 99 2000 uh, uh i think at that stage it might have been where they they took away the capability um well essentially the capability is a is a is a section in a box that sits under a under under a bench uh, and a hole in the roof um but uh the, the, the training at the dad school uh, ceased at, at about that time. So uh, um, who knows? Yeah, time may tell. Uh, with you know, jamming of GPS and other 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 uh, potential uh, um, other potential uh, threats to nav systems, uh, satellite nav systems. Um, who knows? Uh, we may see may see a rise of uh, of astronaut navigation again in the near future. Dust down those log tables. Oh yes. Um, when the Vulcan visited uh, your base, did you get a chance to have a look at the Vulcan? Yeah, I'd, I'd had a very quick, quick look through it. I was I was sort of familiar with uh, just from reading books and whatever, but I was sort of familiar with the general layout. But I've got to be honest, uh, knowing that the Vulcan, uh, as as with the Dipper Tanker and others, they had an AEO on board as well. As did the Nimrod, so uh, we had a bit of an affinity with our uh, our, uh, our aircrew category. But uh, when it, when it occurred to me that the the poor old guys out the back were the ones that didn't have the ejection seats, and only the pilots had the ejection seats, and uh, right. you know, being an AEO on a on a on a V bomber, uh, I thought, no, you can have that. This, <laughs> uh, I'd uh, I, I've just recently read um, uh, Roland White's book uh, about the uh, Operation Blackbutt. And uh, and and he talks a bit about obviously about the development of the Vulcan and and the whole uh, issue with the uh, ejection seats and in fact there's also in um, uh, John Nichols' book uh, Eject 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 uh, which you, you probably I'm sure you're aware of, where he talks about the development of the ejection seat and the the whole concept of having some of the crew not able to actually eject but just have to go through the hole that's left left behind by the pilots. Quite frankly, I think that sucks. Yeah, yeah, they were supposed to exit the uh, the lower hatch rather than actually right, having yeah. time out yeah. through yeah, the yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 through through the pilot position. But yeah, did you yeah. go go in the 
the cockpit of the Vulcan and see how cramped. Oh it was. yeah, certainly did. Yeah. I certainly did, and I was. You know, I was more interested, you know, obviously, in, you know, in the, the back end, sitting down in the in the seats with the the root nav and the radar, the radar nav and the AEO and those guys. Oh God, I mean, imagine sitting in. I just could not imagine sitting in in that for you know, heading from Ascension Island down all the way down to to the Falklands and back. Uh, it just it it. it, it, it uh, it'll be a shocker. It'll be a uh, yeah. bit horrendous way to go to war, if you ask me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And also without a fridge, a galley, all the uh, mod cons that you were used to. Oh, absolutely. And uh, absolutely. not even a proper, not even a proper toilet on board. No, at least on the on the P three we had a, we had, we, had, we even had a door with a with a little vacant engage sign on it. <laughs> so it was. Which was which was only it was a late mod. luxury. Yeah, we, well, we, in fact, that only only happened when we uh, on uh, on one flight when we you know, early eighties when we took the chief of the air staff and his and his wife on board on a trip to Japan and someone thought oh maybe we should have a make an engage sign on the toilet door because of the chief's wife so that was a mod locally made mod and they put a make an engage sign on the toilet door. Oh, it's been there ever since. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so we, we sort of diverged away from, from where I was going, but, uh, I love going down rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah. But pretty early on in your 10 squadron, um, career, you're monitoring a, uh, Soviet diesel submarine. Yes. Foxtrot. Yeah. That was, um, that, that's, a, that's been around a couple of times and there was another Zulu glass at some stage, I believe as well, but the, um, the Soviets had a, a a couple of um, maybe more, I don't know, but uh, uh, diesel submarines that were essentially fitted out uh, as oceanographic survey uh, ships was the was the the general story. But um, uh, we did counted the. I know from early before my time that looking at the unit history, they'd been monitoring one of these up in North Queensland, I think, uh, and uh, this particular one. They even had the name of it written on in Cyrillic across the. Um, the the sail it actually Mars and I've got a photograph photograph of it from the newspaper in my logbook. Uh, we used to love sending out photographs from the papers, but uh, this thing had a, a, a was called called Mars, and uh, and it was operating off West Australia. And at the junction, I I believe is it was doing a hydrographic survey of of the um, the approaches to places like uh, Garden Island Naval Base in uh, just near Perth, which uh, which is now Australia's. Uh, submarine submarine base here, US submarines uh, uh, operate out of it. But at the time, they would have been in there using it just to just to do surveys of the uh, of the, uh, the the ocean bottom and contours and that sort of thing. Uh, there may have been more to it. I wasn't aware of that, but uh, but I understand it was prime. Its primary primary role was a, the hydrographic survey survey vessel. So to survey routes in for yeah their yeah. submarines in the event of war. Yeah, so they're operating uh, outside territorial limits of three miles, and and that's quite legal. And they're they're in there, and they're uh, they're just beetling around. They're, they're in there, working out what the what the bottom contours are of the approaches. Uh, you know, there's not a lot we can do to stop them in international borders. Did you have many of the uh, ubiquitous Soviet trawlers? Quite often, actually. Um, even 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 still today, not well, actually it's for Chinese today, but. Uh, during most of the exercise, the major exercises, uh, a couple of the big ones we did with the Americans over in the West, Operation Beacon Compass and Operation Sand, Operation Exercise Beacon Compass and Exercise Sand Groper, 
uh, out of Perth. Uh, I know a couple of those, but there was um, uh, AG, AG, AGI, so they, they were called the Auxiliary Intelligence yeah. Gatherers, AGI is operating out of there. Uh, on one of those exercises, USS Midway was operating with this uh, carry battle group just off WA, West Australia. Uh, so it was there. Uh, bit, I was aware that uh, we had them um, operating off Queensland during Exercise Kangaroo 81, which I was in, involved in. Um, there are some interesting flying there. But uh, uh, yeah, no, they've certainly been around, um, uh, but they're, they're, they were never regarded so much as a, as, a, as a sort of real threat per se, more of a just sort of, you know, we, you know we've got our eyes on you and we know what you're doing. Okay, fine. Can you... Uh Talk to me about Operation Silent Pearl. Yes, uh, well, Exercise Silent Pearl. Although some people thought it probably should be Operation Silent Pearl. Now, we we um as as part of our ongoing um, activity, Maritime Patrol cooperation with the Americans, uh, we we'd been exercising with them in in Hawaii and Guam and the Philippines for you know for decades. After after the war, and uh, at the time I arrived on the squadron, uh, this series of exercises had, had just commenced, where we'd send a, a P three or two P threes over to Hawaii to the Barbers Point Naval Air Station, which is their P three base at the time in on Oahu, where we do uh, a, a few, you know, two or three uh, training missions uh, operating against a US nuclear submarine, just to get you know, just essentially to get our eye in. But also just to show the Americans that, you know, we, we've got a rough idea what we're doing. And then once we got that squared away, um, and we were using the, the US briefing system. So we go to the, on the base, we go to the, you know, the US Navy's, uh, ASW, no, yeah, the Submarine Warfare Operations Center, where we get the briefings as, uh, as essentially as a member of a US Navy P3, um, squadron. And then once once they uh, they were happy with our performance, uh, we we would then be uh, tasks on what were what were known as out of area sorties. So we would fly north maybe four hours or so to out of Hawaii to North Pacific to the west of uh, of California and British Columbia and that area, where at the time some of the the less capable uh, ballistic missile submarines, so the Yankees and maybe the early Deltas, but I think mainly the Yankees at this stage were were just operating as a patrol line. Uh, with their their nuclear missiles uh, targeting uh, U.S. Uh, cities, and they were they were monitored twenty four seven by the U.S. Uh, U.S. Navy using not only P threes uh, tracking where they could, but there were other national national means uh, that I won't go into there into here that uh, that would have been used as well. But uh, we we were then slotted into their their monitoring schedule, so we would then go up. Um, typically, would take over from a U.S. Navy. P3 that was in contact, passive passive contact with a, a boomer that was submerged on patrol, going at slow speed in the racetrack pattern. We would then uh, monitor the sonar boys that the Americans had dropped, and once they were happy that we had got the contact on on those on our systems from their sonar boys, they'd fly off. We'd then continue, and then we'd start dropping our own sonar boys to to to, to track these ships. And in the early eighties, on the first couple of silent pearls that I, I did, we actually had quite a few contacts. So um, uh, we, we'd go up and on one of these out of areas, and we generally uh, get get a contact. But as the as the nineteen eighties went through, my last one that I did was about nineteen eighty seven, and by then, I'm not sure the absolute circumstances, but it was probably a combination of the fact that uh, later model Delta threes and other submarines and the length and the and the missiles they were using. They didn't really need to sit off the US coast to launch these things. They could sit back in, you know, Murmansk or Vladivostok and still hit their targets. 
but also I don't know whether it was a will or as it was getting closer to Glasnost or whatever, but uh, uh, we, we we were going out on a few of these sorties and essentially getting no contact. We were going out on, you know, quote, historical data. And we'd go out there, we'd beetle around for four hours and find nothing and then uh, then recover into California or or Comboxy in British Columbia and uh, have a 24-hour stop over there and then fly back to Hawaii the next day. So, um, uh, yeah, that was – so we, it was called Exercise Solid Pool in that we were doing training with the US Navy, but it involved actually doing an operation where we are tracking uh, an operational Soviet boomer on patrol against the US target. With a, a nuclear missile submarine, obviously their main aim – well, one one of their their purposes is to remain undetected. Mm. So, more often than not, we were taking over contact that was already had. I wasn't particularly on any cruise where we went out looking for them and then found them. We were generally taking over. But essentially, uh, nuclear submarines. Um, yeah, things have changed now as things have developed, and I'm, I've been I've been out of the out of the information cycle for this one for a while. But but at the time, nuclear submarines. Uh, uh, just by dint of the fact that they had uh, had pumps that are operating at high speed and cooling pumps and that sort of thing and, and uh, electronic services, they had a lot of high frequency um, frequencies that that were were easily detected. Whereas a, a diesel submarine operating on battery was a lot quieter. There were um, elements of the submarine's signature, various uh, frequencies of sounds that were that they would emit that we knew that we had intelligence on that we would. We would um, track them on those uh, on those frequencies, and you could do all sorts of things. So, by if you had a, you know, using uh, using a Doppler effect, if you had a, an emission of a known frequency from a from a from a boat from a, a particular pump or whatever, if suddenly that in- frequency increased slightly or decreased slightly, um, and depending on how it was in relation to other sonoboards around it, you could actually deduce whether the thing had. had Gone past a sonar boy using a Doppler effect, or whether it turned towards another boy, away from another boy. So you could actually track these things fairly accurately on Doppler shifts. Um, by uh, uh, you could say, like, you know, turn left on this boy, and um, and then that would then cue you to where you're going to drop your next pattern of sonar boys. Um, and and it, it, it was it was a very uh, low tech uh, um, solution, which really. Uh, came out of the 1950s using essentially passive passive sonoboys with no directional capability, but just using the the Doppler effect and being able to measure the changes in the frequency based on their movement, where you could where you could quite uh, clearly ascertain where they were with our moving. So we we used that, and that's um, uh, that was my experience. So we didn't actually detect them per se. We we went there. We were um, taking over contacts from others. They say, look, we got a we got a, a detection on this particular source at this frequency. Uh, it's on board, solid boy number such and such, and we would then we would then monitor that boy. Yeah, we got it, and then we'd drop our own boys around it, so we'd got contact on our solid boys, and away we away we go. Yeah, because obviously I'm basing my knowledge on watching Hunt for Red October too many times to mention. There's never too many times to watch Red October. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Another fan. That's what I like to hear. I read Hunt for the Red October and Red Storm Rising uh, in a P3 over the course of one uh, one, deplo- one one month deployment to Butterworth. <laughs> uh, a little a little bit um, uh, cheesy at times in both books, but uh, yeah, quite entertaining. Absolutely. Um, uh, what what sort of weaponry was your P3 packing? 
Well, on these missions, we we weren't going in there armed for you know war. We weren't carrying any war shot, whatever. We, we were there to start World War Three on behalf of the Americans by any means. But but um, yeah, if it was for real, we would be we, we you know the the P three could carry uh, a number of uh, lightweight homing torpedoes, Mark forty Mark forty four, then the Mark forty six, something, then the Mark fifty four. I can't remember the new one that's just been developed. There's even a new a new torpedo that's being used with the the the, the P eight Poseidon, which is the seven three seven derivative that replaced the P three, which they can actually drop that from fire level and using GPS, and it will then it will it will then home to a position where its homing sonar homing would then work in order. So, it's, so they can do end submarine warfare attacks from high level, which is bizarre. Um, so. Uh, uh, so we we carry those uh, those you know, you, you know typically yeah you, know, you might carry uh, four in the uh, four in the bomb bay I think the bomb bay could carry eight I think I may be wrong there but the uh, yeah you know, four in the bomb bay they're 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 not as big as a submarine torpedo uh, they're about, I think they're about a thirteen inch or something diameter something like that anyway whereas the the, the Mark forty eight in a in in um well, Mark eights that uh, HMS Conqueror used I think they're about twenty one inches diameter so they're a much smaller torpedo. But they they pack quite a punch. They've got uh, a good homing capability, uh, so we would ha- we'd add that capability. The Americans had, um, I think, is probably their more primary weapon against uh, nuclear, particular submarines, particularly boomers, uh, would have been the nuclear depth of bombers, which I believe the, uh, the the Royal Air Force had in the Nimrods, capable in the Nimrods as well. So no more of a, you know, you drop it in, you know, the rough rough area of where the boat is, and um, and you know, you're you're pretty likely to get a hit. Yeah, yeah, we've got a Nimrod cockpit at the Avro Museum, and um, I'm always fascinated by the uh, big red button on the joystick, Mark N. Yes, yes. Uh, with a, it's it's a cap. It's there's it's a cap over the button on the uh, on the Nimrod joystick, Mark N. We had a, a Nimrod uh, visiting uh, our base at Edinburgh uh, many many years ago, and I was. Uh, I uh, I took a, a bunch of my civilian friends there to have a look at, over. The, we had an air show there, but uh, at the same at the same time, and um, I took a couple of my civilian friends there, and we uh, sh- showed them around the, the Nimrod. I'd actually gone for a quick little fl- a quick flight a couple of days before in the in, in the Nimrod that was 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 over them, and um, we're, we're looking around the the TACO station on the on the aircraft, and they had a number of panels that had brown paper or old paper bags or something. With the with masking tape stuck over a couple of panels, and one of my civvy civvy mates who was just looked at, is that where the is that where they drop the nukes from? Is it? I thought, oh, I've got no idea, mate. <laughs> so uh, you know, people are stupid. The Australian P threes were yeah. You know, the the originally they they had the capability taken away to uh, we didn't have the appropriate boxes and everything um, to uh, to drop drop the nukes uh, for obvious reasons. But uh, but the Americans uh, the American P threes uh, did. There's so many things in your uh, history here that you've sent me, which I'm fascinated about. But uh, tell me about Operation Caterpillar. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so Operation C- Caterpillar, uh, well, it's actually a, a two-part thing there. That's Operation Caterpillar and six months later, Operation Endquarter. They, they have some great names for these, uh, these operations. I think it wasn't the four plans operation. Better than Kangaroo, which seems to be the only name that Australia can have for a big exercise. Well, well, the big exercise of the Americans is now up in more, more recent years, but that went from Kangaroo to being Crocodile. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh. yeah, yeah. Tell us about it. it no, but well, yeah. Let's think. 
the the, the Falklands, uh, the Falklands War, Operation Corporate. Where did that gun come from? <laughs> but um, the um, yeah, so Operation uh, Caterpillar. Um, these things presumably come out of a, a random number generator book, a random name book. But anyway, we uh, we went to Cocos Cocos Island in the Cocos Islands in the Indian Ocean, about to, uh, about four hours flying time west of uh, west of uh, central western Australia. The uh, the Soviets were doing trials for uh, the development of the Buran space shuttle. Uh, you'd sure you'd be aware of, and uh, as part of those trials, uh, they 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 used a, an old lifting body that they developed, I think, in the sixties, which I think they in turn pinched from the Americans, the uh, uh, the Spiral, I think they called it. Uh, but they they used that as a as a as a as a test bed to mount the the heat tiles, the heat uh, dissipating tiles, um, uh, to 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 trial them. So it wasn't a mini mini Varan space shuttle by any means. It was just a little lifting body uh, uh, reentry vehicle. But they put the tiles on the on the bottom. So they try as from from Australia's perspective, uh, we we monitored two of these uh, these launch these launch recoveries. And um, uh, one was in I think it was June eighty two, and then which was Operation Caterpillar. Then uh, March eighty three uh, was the it was Operation Endquarter, and that was the second one. They were basically the same sort of operation. So uh, through whatever strategic means were were made available, uh, we were aware uh, we the corporate we that is were were aware that uh, the splashdown was going to occur uh, at a location near the Cocos Islands, you know, in a given time frame, and they and the, the means were there to to give a heads up when the launch had actually occurred, and they gave a window for when the when the the, the reentry would occur. So we on, in both cases there was quite a reasonably sized Soviet uh, recovery uh, uh, group turned up for, for the uh, for the operation. There was on one of them I can't remember, can't remember which is which, but there was a there was a Cashin class DDG. There was a, 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 a Kara class cruiser. Uh, the Sobni, I think was a Krivat. There was uh, they'd support ships, uh, logistics support ships, a couple of space event ships. The Chumikin was one of them. Uh, like just a ship with a big golf ball on top. And there was the Gyorgi Dobrovolska, I think it was, was one of these other ones with a couple of antennas sticking at the top of it. Um, so they, they had a quite a sizable force there. Now, we had a twofold interest there. We were interested in monitoring the, uh, the, the reentry and the recovery for obviously intelligence purposes, but, but also, yeah, you've got a bunch of Soviet chips in the area and a little, you know, a bit of a smorgasbord of, uh, of things we can, cont- uh, uh, we can, uh, collect acoustics intelligence and electronic uh, electronic intelligence from. So uh, it was a two pronged approach. So we had the intelligence uh, collection for the for the actual recovery, but also the intelligence collection um, for the for the force, more of a tactical level thing. So we went out there and uh, we yeah we dropped sonar boys near these ships and just got the the latest acoustic. Uh, the signatures of them where we where we could took lots of photographs. Uh, one of the one or two of the ships had uh, hormone uh, helicopters on board, KA twenty five uh, helos on board, and they're flying around and they they're flying interference on us a few times to try to prevent us getting too close. But uh, on the appointed day, I wasn't actually on the crew at the time, but on the appointed day, the the guys were told heads up, it's inbound. And as as luck would have it. Um, on both occasions, our, our crews managed to get in there and get some sort of fantastic photography of of uh, the, uh, the 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 lifting body in the water and as its whole recovery sequence as it's been loaded onto the onto the ship as it's been hosed down, decontaminated, uh, whatever. 
And some of those photographs were, in, in fact, one of, uh, a couple of them ended up on a display, a cold water display in the Smithsonian in, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, um, at the National Air Space Museum. I think it's not there in the house. It's an upgraded display. But um, yeah, I was actually quite, quite surprised one day to see one of these photos. Uh, but uh, that um, that that was probably I'd have to rate that as some of the most um, satisfying flying that I'd, I'd done on the whole the whole time on on uh, on maritime. It was it was busy flying. We're there for each time. We're there for a couple of weeks. Um, Cox Island's a lovely place to visit for for a couple of weeks. It's a very unspoiled little island, a little atoll. Um, so uh, to, to fly against what we were flying against, but then having get getting the ability to. Uh, uh, to get the intelligence and take the photographs of of this a very time sensitive event of a splashdown of a Soviet a Soviet um, test article uh, was, was quite a was was quite an intelligence coup and um, and, uh, and whilst I wasn't actually on the crew that took the photography at the time uh, we're about an hour or two out yep by the way um, it was, I was certainly proud to be part of the whole thing. They are in incredible photos, and I, I hadn't realised the Soviets sort of landed some of their spacecraft in the sea. I always thought they were, you know, trying to land them on the steps in, you know, land-based locations. Yeah, I think I think those two. I can't remember them. The Cosmos, whatever the numbers were, they um, the, the the vehicle was called the BOR four, and I, I I understand that the, the that the the future trials. This, this is post. Uh, you know, post Cold War, uh, uh, open open source uh, investigation on my part, but but essentially the the later uh, development and trials were were done over land, and they didn't. They, I think they decided they didn't want to you know, all these Australians and Americans and Kiwis all flying around them trying to annoy them while they're trying to recover under <laughs> their lifting bodies. It's uh, incredible because I've seen photos of sort of the remains of one of these burans mm. in Russia. And uh, it's very much like the space shuttle. Yeah, the, the US space shuttle. A few little differences. I think they actually had um, engines that air breathing engines that they could use at some stage on them. But they're basically designed. But and and, and I only learned yeah you know, this you know sort of, uh, relatively recently that they did in fact fly them in, in space on a couple of at least one one mm-hmm. or two two occasions and un, unmanned. Um. But one of them was I actually saw it in uh, in Sydney. It was doing a uh, just I think it was just after the fall of the Soviet Union. It was a bit of a, I think it was a bit of a money making thing. They were trying to uh, go around the world and, and try to get a bit of hard hard currency for the uh, for the former Soviet Union. But uh, um, yeah, I saw that brand was uh, was in a you know in a in a in a large uh, overgrown circus tent sort sort of thing down on the uh, on Sydney Harbour on display. And, uh, you know, you know it's twenty dollars to get in to have a look and take photos. No, I think we couldn't take wow. photos. Yeah, so, um, but I understand the the last one that was remaining uh, collapsed in a hangar. There was there was was a snowstorm or something, and I think that there was too much snow on the roof of the hangar, and the whole thing just collapsed on it and, and destroyed it. Um, now, round about this time, you you had uh, an engine failure incident as well. Uh, there was a couple over the years, but there was. Um, there was one just out of Darwin where um, it must have been, it was the first time I'd actually ever been told to set condition five for ditching. But we were at low level flying past a, uh, it was a Taiwanese fishing boat, just taking photographs. And we normally on those sort of flights, we'd have uh, one of the engines shut down just for uh, fuel conservation. And, 
Uh, and it was already shut down. And as we went past it, and I was sitting on the radar station, sensor station three at the time, and I remember feeling a sort of little boot in the backside that you get as, a, as there's a bit of a, a bit of yaw when you shut down an engine. And um, uh, and what had happened is number four engine, the, the outer starboard engine, it just shut down. And we're about 150 feet or something on this rigging run. And th- at that point, the, uh, the front end said, you know, crew set condition five ditching. And, and I was, you know, you know, trying to throw your shoulder straps over your, over your shoulder without the buckle smashing the radar. It's a bit of a, bit of a challenge. But um, we, we climbed away. Well, like within 30 seconds or so, they managed to, uh, you know, so we, we, we got the, the number one engine restarted. Um, and then, uh, then we just reco- recovered back to, uh, to Darwin. Uh, but there was certainly, there was a little bit of, uh, pucker factor there very briefly. There was another, uh, event, uh, coming back from, um, a deployment we did for, for about a week in, um, Okinawa. We, uh, came back via Manila who, uh, were picking up some people that had been attending a, a conference at, uh, Kubi Point. And, uh, and on approach into Manila International, uh, uh, we're on a long final on the, on the, you know, on the, on the ILS. And then next minute, I just hear through the, Public, uh, public address system, uh, and, you know, uh, Mayday or, or through the radio, uh, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday engine fire, you know, so they actually declared a Mayday. Um, they got a, a, an engine fire indication on, uh, on one of the engines and, um, and then pumped the fire bottle into it. And then the, the alarm still continued. Then they pumped the adjacent one, which you can feed, uh, the, the fire systems from one engine to the next one across by one. And they pumped that into it and made no difference. And then, um, uh, th- then we landed. Um, it turned out it was more of an instrumentation error. There was one of the. Can I just hold for a second? I've got a, a cocker spaniel going berserk. Could you yeah, hold? sure. Yeah, well, just don't worry. God knows what that was about. He's barking his head off, getting off like an idiot. Cocker spaniels, they're stupid. Idiot. Don't worry, Lee. I've had far, I've had far worse. <laughs> no, he's good. He's great. Sid. Name, name, we call him Sid. He's, it's either named after, we can't, can't decide whether he's named after Sid Vicious or, 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 or Sid Jones. I think he covers both, both phrases. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sid James would be so, good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so what, yeah, where were we? Um, the May Day where, but it was instrumentation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, so, um, so, yeah. Engine yeah, so, fire. Yeah, so uh, when when we landed, um, yeah, they indicated that uh, there was a fault in the fire warning system, but we still had to get all the, the the fire bottles uh, recharge and everything, and it's very handy that on the op- opposite side of uh, of Manila uh, Bay there was uh, QB Point Naval Air Station, so they flew over uh, a crew maintenance crew from uh, the US Navy and uh, threw some spares in. So over after an overnight in Manila that we hadn't planned on, we, uh, we headed back to Australia, and um, uh, so that one was uh, um, yeah. It, it's one of those ones where you don't know at the time you. you an emergency is declared, and you think, "Oh God, what's happening?" For about a minute or so, but but you know, luckily it all it all, all panned out. You know, there was no real risk, but you didn't you don't know that at the time. Now, I don't have many guests on Cold War conversations that have been involved in causing a diplomatic incident. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I didn't cause it. No, we, we're on a oh, come here, what about nineteen eighteen? Six, I think it was. We're, we're on one of our many bread and butter Australian fishing zone patrols that we used to do. We used to call it fish exits. So basically, um, we, we just fly around the Australian coast, an overnighter in, uh, in Perth, and then an overnighter at Learmox in um, northwest Australia, an overnighter in Darwin, an overnighter in Townsville, and then you come back. It's about a week, and you're just looking for uh, illegal fishing boats and that sort of, sort of thing. 
Uh, and on this particular one, we're, we're, we're flying down the Queensland coast and we saw the uh, Alexander Pushkin, one of the CTC line uh, cruise liners that well, they, they've been advertising you know, cruises on, the, on, on television in, in Australia for you know, quite, quite a while. And we thought, oh, cruise ship, you know, that's red rag to a bull. So we went down and did the standard um, allowed, uh, what we call a rigging run. We'd get, fly down one side, take photographs, and then fly down the other side, take photographs at low level, and then and then uh, run across the uh, across the stern. Uh, but but as it turned out, uh, the the captain of the, um, the the ship took exception to this, and um, he he immediately complained to uh, his his hierarchy, who presumably complained to the Soviet uh, foreign ministry, who then presumably complained to the Australian embassy in Moscow, and then. Uh, diplomatic notes were passed, and then the next morning we were uh, we were told look, yep, the departures delayed. The, the aircraft captain and Taco have, uh, are required to go, uh, you know, make a couple of phone calls and do it. Please explain. We we downloaded all the all the Saudi records and all the data of the of our navigation data with the altitude and, and the photographs, and it turned out that uh, we had not in fact breached anything as far as the height or proximity to the ship. And uh, so essentially, my understanding is the Australian government went back to the Soviet government and said, uh, you know, like the international orders, um, um, they were doing what their, you know, what their job was, and uh, so you know, take a hit. Just a, a fuss about nothing, really. Well, for, for one of these things when you when you don't know what's as as we're waiting for the uh, for the download of the uh, of the navigation data, we we were sort of looking very closely at oh, the, the altitude as we went past the stern. That might have been, oh, we don't know. Um, but as it turned out, uh, it, uh, the, the numbers the numbers on the printout didn't lie. We're okay there. My major, my my bigger concern there was probably uh, the fact that they'll probably had you know a lot of these cruise ships they have things like uh, like pigeon shooting off the stern and that sort of thing. So I was more concerned about that, I guess. Yeah, bit of grape shot in your tail. That oh, wouldn't have been a good look. No, not a lot. No. Operation Gateway. Is quite a long-standing operation. I think in in your notes you said it started in 1981. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, yeah. Just a, a very brief background. Um, yeah, we'd been monitoring over the, the decades, yeah, you know, post-war um, Soviet and other uh, activities in the uh, in the in the Southeast Asia area. But more often than not, we would fly up there on a on a scheduled yeah you know, one one to two week deployment. Schedule in advance, and we, we, you know, you'd arrive and be told, "Oh, um, you, you missed a, you missed a, uh, an SSGN that went last, went past last week, and there's a, and there's a, a Soviet arms carrier going next week. We, we would have gone home by then." Um, and and somewhere along the line, someone decided that it wouldn't be a, good, a better idea if we actually had a standing deployment there that could could in fact respond to contacts as they uh, as they arose, um, and. And that that suggestion, from my understanding, had been around for quite some time. But in about eighty eighty one, I understand that uh, there's there's a bit of more detail about this in um, the book Cold War uh, Warriors that uh, I'll probably mention later on, where uh, part of Australia's diplomatic response to the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan, sanctions and whatever, part of that was that there was a change in the posture of of Creating this uh, this standing detachment in Butterworth in Malaysia, uh, and it was it was bo- primarily um, set up as a bilat between Malaysia and Australia, where we would be providing them training on maritime patrol and s- surveillance and that sort of thing. Uh, but it was but it was very much involved in um, in um, providing a, a presence in the area, um, 
with with response capability if it was required as as a, as a diplomatic message. Um, uh, so that I think it was about February eighty one. I think rings a bell. Um, was the first Gateway sortie number eleven squadron on the old steam driven P three Bs. I think flew the first Gateway sortie. And it was one of those things that you did uh, three or four times a year. You'd go up there, you know, for you know, three weeks, four weeks at a time. Uh, sometimes you wouldn't see a lot. Other times you'd, you'd get some really good flying. You'd have uh, what we call prosecutions where, you'd, where there'd be a Soviet submarine would be transiting the Malacca Straits and you'd react to that. You'd uh, go into a higher tempo flying. Uh, on other times you'd just do a standard rotation of every couple of days, every two or three days. You'd just fly another standard uh, standard route. And, uh, you know, checking out radar contacts out to the west and in the south, join the sea and further south. Um, so, so that uh, that operation is still ongoing. Um, it's 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 changed quite a bit, obviously, over the years. It's uh, I'm not sure uh, how many. I think they may only have one, one one aircraft, one crew there now, and there's certainly different different um, priorities of uh, of what. Uh, what we're looking for up there and what her diplomatic and uh, military strategic purposes is for being there would it would have changed and uh you know we've had uh you know, it's been publicized in the news we've had uh the raps p8 poseidons on a number of occasions now flying routes essentially that we've flown for decades in the south china sea but being challenged by uh by chinese and uh, chinese ships and and aircraft uh, so uh, that's a bit of a different dynamic to it now. But essentially, what you're seeing now with P8s flying in um, freedom of navigation flights around the South China Sea is the same operation that started in 1981 uh, as a response to uh, to the uh, to 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 both uh, providing a a more responsive maritime surveillance capability in the region, but also partly as a diplomatic uh, response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So it's been going, going for, what is it now? It's, you know, 40, oh, 43 years now. It's, it's, it's quite, quite amazing. That's quite a, yeah, quite a length of time. Uh, I mean, you mentioned China there. How much of a threat was China perceived as during the, uh, the Cold War? Well, from my perspective, um, Really, never. We we never had any anything to do with them in our area in the in, in the in the in Indian Ocean, South China's area. There, there were one or two occasions where uh, Chinese uh, satellite tracking groups um, were in the, the South Pacific monitoring either the launches or recovery of satellites. Which uh, I think there were some responses there. I can't remember when when or where they were, but that that was more of just response to. You know scientific uh, activities, but certainly the, um, the the there was no at, at no time when uh, when I was flying in, in in that region was there any in the back of my mind that I have any sort of that oh god the Chinese um, it was um, we we had you know our standard priorities uh, target target or, or, or contact of interest priorities which you know, things like Soviet. Uh, uh, Soviet forces, but we're also very interested in, you know, in regional, uh, regional development. So we were interested in, you know, if you Vietnamese uh, ships were going around the area. Uh, there was, um, we, we had an interest in, in monitoring, um, the procurement of a uh, couple of, uh, German type 209 submarines by, by Indonesia back in the, uh, in the early eighties. Uh, I was on a, I was on a, um, a sortie where we, we're getting photography of a couple of uh, uh, ex-Dutch 
uh, destroyers, you know, bunch of big destroyers, which are basically the river class Leander types, and they'll be handed over to handed over to Indonesia. So we we went out to uh, to look at look at those before they uh, went into service with uh, with Indonesia as they left uh, their um, transit port at uh, Sri Lanka on the way in. So we, we had interesting other things, but really China really never popped up as a as a as a major you know threat's probably the wrong word to use, but that of a of a, of a target of interest or a contact of interest. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. You leave P3s in December 87. I mean, what what would you say was your highlight of your uh, P3 experiences? I think I mentioned earlier on, if I look back back on it now, probably the most um, satisfying flying I did was either um, during Operation Encorder, when we were monitoring the the Soviet re-entry vehicle, but I'd have to also uh, toss in there... uh, Tracking, you know, I think it was the, I think it was in 1981 on one of the silent pearls where we actually had, had hot contact on, on a Soviet, I think it was a Yankee, a Yankee class, might have been an early Delta, I'm not sure, but one of the two. But I, I do recall, uh, we were, we were tracking, tracking one of those at the time. And, and, and at the time, I didn't really think of it as a big deal, but I look back at it now and think, you know, if it was me as a 20 something Australian, um, over the North Pacific, um, on behalf of the Americans monitoring uh, you know, a dozen or a dozen or so, you know, thermonuclear weapons pointed at American cities. It's quite an awesome, um, uh, you know, awesome uh, responsibility and uh, circumstances to be in. Um, and the fact that that the Americans trusted us to 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 be part of the operations to track those, I think, uh, is a uh, it's a kudos on the Australian Defence Force that I think has been pretty understated over the over the years. It's it's a it's it's sort of up there in many ways with you know, the your most trusted secrets with you know, the other five eyes signals intelligence environment is one area and how the how, you know the the um, the trust needed to share secrets at that level but to the trust needed to allow you know dang foreigners to to monitor a threat to your nation i.e. America um, is uh, it's, it, it's pretty daunting. I certainly wasn't aware that. The uh, the Royal Australian Air Force have been involved in operations in in that area, so that was um, uh, a fascinating part for for me. Um, I just want to ask you about some of your uh, your post P three uh, career because there's some there's some interesting bits in here, and we're sort of stepping a little bit outside the Cold War. But um, so September ninety three, you're a submarine observer. Yes. On HMCS Ojibwa. Yes. Um, now, what's it like to be on the other end 
Well, um, I, I jumped at the chance to do that. I, was, I got a phone call from uh, one day from one of my old squadron mates who was working in headquarters operation command at the time. And um, you, you may may not be aware. There's a there's it's it's a bit in abeyance at the moment. I think there's talks to re, to resurrect it. But there, for many years there was the annual Fincastle Trophy competition. So it was a, an anti-submarine warfare competition between the old Commonwealth nations. So essentially, your uh, Royal Air Force, Royal Australian Air Force, Kiwis, and the and Canadians. And we'd rotate the the host would rotate uh, through the years, and uh, those country would apart from New Zealand, obviously, would provide the the uh, the target submarine and in this particular year I was I was in a um, a mind numbingly boring staff job in uh, in in Canberra and I got this phone call and said look Lee do you want to be yeah what's the chance of interested in becoming uh, get, getting deployed to ninety two wing for for the Fincastle well, where is it this year Canada I got another word to the group captain so I had a word to my fighter pilot group captain I said look nah he said yeah go for it. Um, so, uh, essentially, uh, each nation provides observers in the other competing nations' aircraft to keep them, uh, to keep them honest, but also one nominated country, in this case, Australia, you know, got to provide the, uh, the submarine observer. So, uh, I put my end up for that and said, yeah, I'm in. So, uh, on arrival, uh, delayed arrival at, uh, at Greenwood, uh, Canadian Forces Base in Greenwood in Nova Scotia, which, which interestingly was my, my, my big brother flew on exchange with the Canadians on Aurora's there about 20 years before. Uh, we, we flew to, um, well, a Canadian crew flew me down to Boston and then I joined a Jibwa at uh, uh, the Charleston Shipyard, which is right next to where the, I think it's USS uh, Constitution is docked and um, was doing a maintenance at the time. So off we went on, a, I think it was Saturday or Sunday, Sunday morning out of, out of Boston Harbour on the surfacing, slowly going out in amongst all the, all the fishing boats and pleasure boats and crab pots and crab floats in the water in this uh, Canadian uh, Oberon class boat, and then um, yeah, we we're basically submerged for um, for about eight days uh, uh, during the competition. So each each aircraft, each country would send an aircraft out to uh, on a on a set scenario to uh, to to track the boat in in a competition um, sort of um, um, scenario. And, and my job was to be in the ops room and make sure that they were doing the right thing and putting their periscopes up when they needed to and, you know, offering uh, op- options for um, opportunities for detection when they were, as per the rules. But eight, eight days on one of those boats, which isn't that much different from a Type 7 new boat, I must say. <laughs> I think it was probably based on the Type 7 or the Type 21 at least. Uh, yeah, a, a little bit whiffy. Um and uh, yeah, a lot of lot of diesel fumes and um, and whatever. Yeah, we we stopped. We went to the surface once during a whole period where there was a uh, we had a, a medevac where one of the sailors had to be winched off, and uh, and a Canadian um, one of the I can't remember what they call them there little Canadian twin engine helicopter sea sea night thing, but it's all bright yellow that came out and uh, and flew over the top um, and hovered over there and took the sky away. And I thought that was quite spectacular. And then very reluctantly, we all went back down below again and off we went for another four days. Uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I'm glad when it was over. I uh, I left uh, after the base. I had a couple of days off in in Halifax in Nova Scotia and I went to all my favourite pubs that I've haunted best before. It had a great time. It had the longest showers, baths, uh, that I've ever had in my life because it's you know, eight days with no shower, stinking of diesel fumes. <laughs> yeah, so no, it, 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 that was that was great. That was great fun. Glad I did it. Must have been really interesting being seeing it from the other 
you know the other end of things it was yes uh there um mm. and uh i'm delighted to see that you well you worked with one of my guests uh sue boyd from episode 151 how, how on earth did that happen well that was just you know your, your the fact that she turned up on your episode run i was just listening to the latest episode on that day in the car driving to wherever i was driving to but sue boyd <laughs> no she, i i I was um, posted into, I applied for it, I was, I was posted into the job as Australian Defence Advisor in, in Suva, in Fiji, responsible for Fiji and uh, Samoa, Tonga, and a couple of other South Pacific nations. But Sue was the High Commissioner uh, 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 at, at the time. And I must say, she, she initially thought, mm, an Air Force person coming into this job, but Fijians have only got an army and a navy. And I had to remind her that I was there representing the Australian Defence Force, not the Royal Australian Air Force. So we just got on fine. Uh, no, Sue, Sue was a bit of a hoot at times. Uh, yeah, interesting person to work for. Uh, but I was, it was, yeah, she, I was aware of her previous experiences in, um, uh, in earlier postings. And, uh, and I, I'd, I'd actually, only just before that episode, I'd actually seen her book in, um, uh, in a local bookshop here uh, at Noosa. And, uh, I, thought, oh, well, I might get that. So I had a read. I didn't get a mention, but my predecessor did. The Navy, the Navy commander that was in the job before me, he, he got a mention, not by name now. Uh, but yeah, that was, it was fascinating to hear, hear that, uh, hear that story. Um, the, her adventures of, I think she was in East, East Germany, uh, East Berlin at the time. And interestingly, her, uh, her, her deputy in Fiji, uh, was, uh, uh, Margaret Toomey. She then went on to be the Australian ambassador in, in the, in, uh, in Russia. In, in that would have been that would have been sort of the, the late two thousands. Uh, Lee, if if the uh, listener wants to understand more about P three mm. operations with the Royal Australian Air Force, where was the uh, best place to go to for that? Well, well, uh, there's there's plenty of stuff online. So uh, if you if you looked at if you just looked up uh, number ten squadron RAF or eleven squadron RAF, uh, you, you'd find eventually go down the the uh, the Wikipedia rabbit holes, you'd find all sorts of things operation gateway um but uh, more recently there's been um uh, a book produced called cold war warriors which provides a, a quite a good account of um uh of the uh of p3 operations in the rat from the, the late 60s through to uh, i think 90 91 90 90 92 um and that was published by the air force history and heritage branch uh who have a that have an ongoing program of uh of history air force history publications and that was one of the ones that came out a couple of years ago in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of the rap that's by uh ian ian pearson um so that's uh you know, cold war warriors so if you did a search on that you'd find it um there's others to specifically about uh, about the RAF in the cold war from the maritime perspective there's not really that many um uh, there's every now and then you read a book and you find a one-liner in it to, uh, uh, that might might mention it briefly. There's the official histories, uh, but the official histories don't cover that area yet. Um, so um, that'd probably be my 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 main uh, one for the Cold War period. But uh, from an earlier p- uh, period, uh, the RAF's Maritime Patrol has a an almost an un um, uh, an unending or unbroken record from 1939, where we sent number 10 squadron over to the UK to pick up the MI Shining New Sunderlands to bring them back to Australia. And then, unfortunately, the war broke out. And so the Australian government said, you know, 10 squadron, you guys 
can stay there and fly with uh, coastal command for the next six years. So ten squadron uh, was flying throughout uh, throughout the war in Sunderland's, and there's a, a couple of good accounts on that. One called Maritime is number ten by uh, Kevin Bass. Uh, there's an there's a, another uh, account of uh, RAF four six one squadron Sunderland's. Uh, um, they shall not pass unseen by Neville Shute, who wrote On the Beach, and uh, which is you know, a very famous Cold War um, uh, story, a uh, fiction fiction story. Other, other than that, there really isn't 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 that much that covers that part of the that part of the story. I'll provide links to uh, those uh, suggestions in the episode notes so that people can Certainly. follow up on that. Hmm. And uh, Lee, I'm really pleased to see that you are an oral history interviewer yourself and uh fascinated to see that you you know korean war uh vietnam war veterans mm. and australia's role in the vietnam war is quite often uh forgotten yeah so that that, that came as a bit of a uh, sort of an accident just uh, one of these examples of mission creep i came into the history and heritage branch when i transferred from the permanent air force to the uh, to the reserve in 2015 and uh, and I was asked to uh, to help out to initially with uh, doing some interviews with with the army as well. Uh, you know what they, what the army call a, a history field team or field history team, where we deployed um, to uh, to our base in uh, the UAE and and did oh, I essentially did a a number of interviews with current serving RAS members uh, who were on operations as part of the air task group that was operating there at the time. Um, against uh, ISIS. And then I went back and did it again 12 months later. So on the strength of all the interviews that I did then with with folks who were including the CEO of one of the, the F-18 squadrons just after he came back from a nine-hour sortie strapped into a bank seat, um, on the strength of that, uh, we were approached at our branch by um, by the Australian branch of the Bomber Command Association who, um, who, who were keen to uh, 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 get uh, a number of interviews captured by uh, a number of their of their members who were, you know, sadly, you know, fewer and fewer each year. So I put my hand up for that one, and um, I ended up you know, in that it, within about a two or three month period. I interviewed uh, about a dozen of these chaps, and I've interviewed quite a few of them since. And that led me from the these bomber command chaps into other World War Two RAF veterans, then interviewing a number of um, uh, RAF veterans from Vietnam who were involved in. Uh, Air operations, uh, flying caribous, Canberra bombers, um, uh, ground defence officers, uh, like, like the RAF regiment, but the Australian Air Force. Uh, so I did a, a number of interviews with with those folks, uh, a couple with Korean War. Um, uh, so it, it's been uh, it's been it's been probably the most interesting part of my uh, my my my, uh, my new life in the Air Force Reserve. And I've got about another two years to go before they forcibly. You know, send me down as my as my age uh, age extension expires. <laughs> so, uh, so so I'm quite enjoying it, and I hope it, hope it continues as long as we've got to people to uh, to interview and are willing to be interviewed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's always great to uh, speak with a fellow oral historian, and obviously the the aim of this podcast is to try and capture as many of these stories as as we can whilst people are, are still around. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. 
The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information